This evening's New Testament reading can be found on page 1914 of the New International Version of the Holy Bible. It is taken from the second chapter of Revelation, reading through to verse 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear lets him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Pete, for reading, and let me add my welcome to St. John's this evening. Um, if you've got a Bible nearby, it would be really helpful to have it open at page 1914, as I plan to refer to the passage during uh, the talk. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've caused your scriptures to be written down so that we may know the truth. Thank you for this rich and complex book of Revelation that you've made available for us to study and to learn from. Help us to grapple with and understand the imagery and the message you have for us. Enlarge our vision of the Lord Jesus and what it means to be his church, we pray. And help me as I speak to be faithful and to say only those things which are from you and are fully in line with your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great, so let's look at the context of the passage and what it teaches us. Um, so what is the story of Revelation so far? In the last couple of Sunday evenings, uh, we've looked at chapter one of the book, and let me just give a, a short summary of what we've learned. In the introduction, John has told us that he's sharing a revelation. Uh, the revelation comes from God, who gives it to Jesus. 
Uh, the revelation is to show that his servants what must soon take place. And it's made known by sending his angel to John. And so it comes from John to us in this book. So you can see the sequence there, God to Jesus, to the angel, to John, to us. So this is a message from God through Jesus. And it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, or from Jesus Christ, or most probably both. It's from Jesus and of Jesus. So then John shares with us a description of his vision of the risen and ascended Jesus. And it's rich in Old Testament imagery and picking up texts from Daniel 7, Daniel 10, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zechariah. And here John is unleashing a full-blown multi-sensory experience as he shares this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ with us. And just picking out a couple of attributes, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And quite properly, John falls down as if dead at Jesus' feet in the face of this amazing vision. This awesome Jesus, pictured in all his glory, then places his right hand on John and tells him not to be afraid. Note also that Jesus is seen among the lampstands, which are the churches. It's important not to miss the scale and just the breathless majesty of this amazing picture of this risen Jesus. So perhaps just to amplify on that, when talking about feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, we should be thinking about perhaps about something like this. This photograph uh, accompanied an article in a newspaper about an accident at this furnace. Four individuals were very seriously burned by the heat from the furnace. That's the kind of thing that Jesus' feet looked like bronze from a furnace. And when talking about the sun shining in all its brilliance, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance, we should perhaps be thinking maybe along these lines. It makes our eyes hurt just to take a look at this picture in all its brilliance. Imagine the impact of the actual sun with its rays blazing down, pouring out all its energy. It's so intense that it's not safe to look at it. So Jesus then shares with John his messages to the seven churches. All of the messages follow a similar format. So before launching into the first message to the church in Ephesus, it's worth looking at the format just to get familiar with it. And there are seven elements to the message. Firstly, there's the opening to the angel of the church in blank, place name, uh, right, which is pretty clear. Second element is the phrase, these are the words of, and that's followed by a description of Jesus. And each of these descriptions is different, and they're actually taken from the descriptions that are set out in chapter one. So Jesus picks up a different particular element of the description, which is relevant to the message he's about to deliver. The third element is I know, it's, and then it's followed by specific points which Jesus knows about the church in question. It's generally a positive attribute or an action for which the church is being commended or encouraged. The fourth element of each of the four, uh, seven messages is yet I hold this against you, followed by a problem or an issue which the church needs to address. The fifth part 
is a command that's given by Jesus how to address the problem, how to deal with this issue, how to respond. Sixth element is the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's an emphatic command to listen to the message and not just listen, but also to act on it. And it, uh, it refers to the churches here, not just one church. Interesting that it's a message to the church in Ephesus, but then it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's in the plural in the Greek. Each one of the churches needs to think about all of the seven messages. And the final element of, of the, each message is the phrase, to him who overcomes, uh, and is followed by an element of the new heaven and the new earth. And that's actually taken from a description of the new heaven and the new earth, which is later on in the book of Revelation. And if you're taking notes, it's from Revelation 21.9 through to 22.5, where there's just various elements of the new heaven and the new earth that are described. So let me say another couple of things before launching into the message to the church in Ephesus. Firstly, why pick up seven churches? He picks up these messages to these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Clearly, it's not a full list of all the churches in Asia Minor. Important cities such as Colossae and Miletus, for example, are not included. So John is using this number seven symbolically. It's to denote all the churches. Seven is a number denoting a complete set. So even today, we have seven days in one week. We have seven, sailing the seven seas. We talk about sailing the seven seas. It doesn't mean seven specific seas. It means sailing all the seas. So it's a full set of seas. Um, in ancient times, there are also seven known planets. So again, that number represented a full set. So the messages are not just specifically to, relevant for Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, etc. They're actually a message to the entire church, the full church. Not only then, but his church today, here now. I think we'll find that the positives and negatives which affected the church then are still very relevant to us today. Also, in order to understand the message to each church, as Matt helpfully said right at the beginning, we need to understand a bit about the local situation which prevailed. And this will help us to see how the message applied to that church in the first century. And equipped with that, we then be able to draw out the points which are relevant and applicable to us today. So let's take a look at the uh, situation in the first century Ephesus. Firstly, Ephesus was an important port uh, located near modern-day Selchuk, which I had to look up on uh, the internet as to how to pronounce that. Selchuk, whether Cisadel is a ch sound, Selchuk in Turkey. It was the largest city in the region and growing and wealthy. In fact, it was one of the five largest cities in the entire Roman Empire at the time. The port was a natural harbor, and it made it a great place to do business. It had good inland communications also with other centers of population in Asia Minor. So quite a bustling and thriving, busy place. Uh, the population was diverse. It included Greeks, Romans, Jews, Anatolians, and numerous other ethnic groups. As Ephesus grew, it became more important, and the Romans actually moved their administrative center from Pergamum to Ephesus. As with all things Roman, they built infrastructure, so they had a couple of aqueducts that they built there, aqueducts that they built there uh, under the uh, Roman Emperor Augustus. 
And here's a picture of some of the Roman remains in Ephesus, which are pretty impressive, aren't they? You think this might be the town hall or something? This is the library. This is the Celsus Library, which remains in Ephesus. So a very impressive building, a very impressive place. And some other things that affected the church in Ephesus. The city boasted a large Roman temple, which was built by the Flavian dynasty of Vespasian and his sons Titus and Domitian. There was a massive statue of Titus in the temple, and full military gear, full military attire. And so you can imagine that, that there was a huge Roman emphasis and a huge amount of uh, uh, emphasis placed on military might of Rome. And Ephesus was also a place that was very keen to win the favor of Rome. It was twice the winner of the function of imperial temple warden, which gave it a lot of status in Asia Minor. In addition to the worship of the Roman emperors, the city was the hub of worship for the Greek goddess Artemis, uh, and the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So the church in Ephesus was planted by Paul uh, around 50 AD in conjunction with Priscilla and Aquila, and we re read about this in Acts chapter 19 and 20. Paul spent two years in Ephesus, and his ministry there, uh, he, he was instrumental in the growth of the church, but also the ministry gave rise to a riot and significant threats against the Christians in Ephesus. His local business interests were worried that Christianity would have an adverse effect on the worship of Artemis. So the Christians at Ephesus would have been surrounded by competing beliefs and cults, aware of the hostility towards them, also aware of the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. Very good, so much for context and background. Let's take a look at this passage and let's learn, uh, see what we can learn from the message uh, to the church in Ephesus. And we can see from verse two that it's from him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, this picks up a description of Jesus in chapter one, verse 13, and also in verse 16 of chapter one. And we can see from uh, chapter 1, verse 20, that the stars are the angels of the seven churches. They represent the churches themselves and their existence in the heavenly realms. Also from that verse, the lampstands are the seven churches. So this description of Jesus emphasizes his care and concern for the churches. He holds them in his right hand and he walks amongst them looking after them and engaging with them. He's got an intimate, first-hand knowledge of the churches. He's closely and personally involved with them. So what does Jesus know about the church in Ephesus? Uh, there follows a ringing endorsement of the faithfulness of the church in Ephesus and of its actions. The saints in Ephesus are commended for their hard work, for their perseverance with patient endurance, for the fact that they don't tolerate wicked people, their testing and rejection of those who claim to be apostles, and yet they're false, their perseverance a second time, suffering hardships in Jesus' name, and not growing weary. I don't know about you, but this is an impressive list, isn't it? Would that our deanery or our diocese or the whole Church of England was filled with churches that we could commend in this way. This is fantastic, isn't it? It's great. But then... There's a massive shock. 
a stinging rebuke delivered by the Lord Jesus himself, telling them that he knows that they have forsaken the love they had at first. They've fallen far, and he calls on them to repent and to do the things they did at first. It's not just a change of course, a two-degree shift. They're called to turn right around, go the other way, get back to what they did when they first had faith in the Lord Jesus. To underline the seriousness of the situation, the Lord tells them that repenting is essential. If they fail to act, he's going to come and take away their lampstand. That is, the very existence of the church is at risk. He then switches back and commends them on their rejection of the practices of the Nicolaitans, who were false teachers, and we don't actually know an awful lot about them, but clearly they were not uh, teaching the truth. But the summary of this whole letter, this whole rebuke section particularly, is that love is key. While the Ephesian Christians were impressive in their actions, the defense of true Christian faith, the soundness of their doctrine, they had clearly forgotten the point of faith in Jesus, which is love. It appears that in their determination to work hard, to stick to sound teaching, and to reject wickedness, they've forgotten the core of God's gospel, the good news of Jesus, which is all about his love for all the world. Remember John 3.16, which we heard about this morning again. John 3.16, it's key. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God's love is the driver. His people must also have that love and display that love both for him and for one another. In John's first letter, he puts it like this. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Our passage doesn't mention how this lack of love arose. Maybe they were so busy with all their hard work and so pressured by the persecution they were experiencing that relationships, care, concern for other people, love for God, they just stopped doing it. Maybe they became hard-hearted because of the constant conflict which surrounded them. It's hard to be loving and vulnerable when everyone's arguing with you, criticizing you, looking for your destruction, trying to drag you down. Jesus' message concludes with the command to listen carefully, take it to heart, and act on it. And it's followed by the promise that the one who is victorious uh, is going to be given the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. That's mentioned in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, and it links back to Genesis 2 and uh, the description of the Garden of Eden. Man's access to the tree of life is restored in the new heaven and the new earth as the effects of the fall are reversed. So eating from the tree of life leads to eternal life. So let's try and apply what we've learned to us here 
and now in the, uh, in the 21st century Southbourne. Uh, it's good to hear about Ephesus. What about Southbourne? So clearly, we need to take a hard look at ourselves and see if we have fallen into the same situation. Like the Ephesians, have we fallen far from our first love? Have we focused on working hard, keeping sound doctrine, refuting error, standing firm, persevering at the expense of love for God and for our neighbors? How would we know for certain that love is at the core of all that we think and say and do at St. John's right now? We need to pause and consider this both personally as well as corporately as Christ's church. Personally, what's motivating us? What drives us? Is it all about our love for God and for others? Or is it more about what others think of us? Wanting to keep our promises, our commitments, being trustworthy and reliable in others' eyes. If no one knew what we were doing, would we still do it out of love? Are our thoughts and attitudes also immersed in love for God and for others? Do we serve and work willingly with gladness? Or do we do so reluctantly and grudgingly? As God's church, is love for God and for those around us at the core of our being? Are our actions going through the motions, perhaps focused internally or self-serving? Or are we reaching out with joy to share the good news with all we meet for the benefit of God's glory. Very much food for thought. I was really challenged going through this. Now what? If we lack love in any area of our lives, we need to take action promptly. We need to repent. We need to rekindle the love we had at first. This isn't optional. Our very continued existence as Christ's church depends on us being rooted in God's love. Just look at the Ephesian church. They had impressive credentials. Outwardly, everything was going well. They were doing everything right. And yet, inwardly, they had fallen far, losing sight of the love of God and without love for neighbors. Let's examine what we're doing carefully. Let's ask God for insight and wisdom about our own situations about our own attitudes and motivations. And let's also ask him to restore the love we had at first. As we think about this vital question, let's not lose sight of the fact that God loves us unconditionally because of his grace. Our God, who sent his son Jesus to die for us on the cross and who sent his spirit to live in our hearts, he's certainly not going to reject us, but instead he'll reshape us so that we can once again experience the love we had at first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and reaching into our hearts to shape us more and more into the likeness of your, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we read these words to your church, we're convicted about those areas of our personal lives in which we've fallen far from the love which we once had.
Deal gently with us, we pray. Restore us in your power to the love which we had at first so that we can once more reflect your glory and be your ambassadors to those you have placed around us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our risen Lord. Amen. Next week is Smyrna. So uh, let's see what the Lord has to say to the church in Smyrna. Thank you.